Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 7. Did you notice the headline in the Bellingham Herald on Friday that said, Democratic Senator Nancy Pelosi will most likely become the Speaker of the House, and she is going to work together with President Bush. President Bush and Nancy Pelosi are going to work together. They had lunch, they had pasta, now they're going to work together. When pigs fly. (laughs) Before that lunch, they had about as much appreciation for each other as we had for our dog a couple of years ago when he came home smelling like a skunk. But now they're going to work together. Usually what it means when the majority party says... Let's all get along is it means this. We would like you to work with us. <laughs> we have an agenda. Now, won't you work together with us? The only way that two political groups can genuinely work together is if they believe the same things. And generally speaking, that is not true in many matters with our two main political parties. The same problem exists between Christians and those who have not yet believed in Christ. We, many times at least, most of the time, would like to get along famously with them. And sometimes they would like to get along with us. But unfortunately, we can't unless we believe the same things. And the roots of this struggle goes all the way back to Jesus Christ himself, And we're going to read about the beginning of this in John chapter 7. Up until now, there's been a variety of things going on, but from John chapter 7 on, there's a more more significant, concrete kind of effort of people opposing Christ. Let's read about it in John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. That's a good evidence that somebody is not on your side. I'm thankful that nobody's ever wanted to kill me. But they wanted to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast, and they said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Jesus has 
crossed over a line, if you will, to where there is significant controversy about him. There is significant hatred of him. And what we want to understand today is this great divide that exists between Christians and those who have not yet believed in Christ as their Savior. And I, I like to refer to them that way because I firmly believe that some people who today do not believe in Christ will someday be believers. And so I don't condemn them in any way. In fact, we're going to read about some of those folks right here in this very text in a minute. But the great divide that exists between Believers and unbelievers is told to us here in this way. First of all, the unbelievers sought to physically stop Jesus. They disliked him so much, they said, let's kill him. If we were to go back, to, uh, go back a couple of chapters to uh, John chapter 5, we'd read this. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more. That means they'd already been thinking about it and talking about it, but by this point, which happens earlier, a few months before this uh, John chapter 7 happens, they sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, he also said that God was his Father making himself equal with God. Now, I would readily grant you that if their evaluation of Jesus was accurate, then their actions were justified. But the problem is, these unbelievers, like many of them today, sought to physically stop Jesus or stop Christianity because they disagreed, not because it's untrue, not because it's harmful, but because they just plain don't like it. As I read this, I have to say that one of the images that came to my mind was, was back during the Cold War of the East Germans or the Russians. If somebody said something they didn't like, they just tossed them in jail. Or, you know, if they were really bad by their standards, they executed them. They didn't say, now let's sit down and talk about this. The Jewish leaders were not interested in an open discussion. My mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. If the Jewish leaders had sat down with Jesus and had taken out the Old Testament, which they had in its entirety, and if they had said, okay, Jesus, prove to us that you are this Son of God, this Messiah, Jesus would have went, uh, let's start at Genesis chapter 1. And then let's go to Genesis 3.15, and then let's go, and, and he would have went right through. Do you know that that's what he did with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus? Or on the, is it the Emmaus or Jericho? After his resurrection, he's walking along, and these guys are all boo-hooing because Jesus was crucified. And it says he went back and went through the whole old them and helped them to understand. And they came to faith. If these Jewish leaders who were trying to kill him, if they were honestly interested in the truth, if they were honestly interested in coming together, they would have said, let's have a sit down, let's discuss this. And he would have opened the scriptures and he would have said, now look at my life for these last, my ministry for these last two and a half years and look at the scriptures and look at my life and tell me if this doesn't match up. And they would have come to the same conclusion that the disciples who became the apostles did, which was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they did not want 
an open discussion. They said, our mind's made up. We don't like your message. We're going to kill you. That's how we're going to discuss this. Now, there were some folks later on in the, uh, in the events of, that we read about in the Bible who were different, who were interested in an open discussion. And we read about them in Acts chapter 17. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those are two broad schools of ancient Greek philosophy, they encountered Paul and someone said, what does this babbler want to say? Clearly, they, they didn't think he was, you know, whatever he was talking about was kind of goofy because they call him a babbler. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? They said, tell us about this. There's an open discussion. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked him and others said, we will hear you again on this matter. However, some men joined him and believed. They didn't feel a need to kill him. They had an open discussion. And the result was some believed. And some walked off going, this guy is off his rocker. Fine, I don't have a problem with that. But that is not the way the world normally works. The normal attitude toward Christianity Christian friend, you will not often find unbelievers who will politely listen and discuss Jesus Christ and sin and righteousness and heaven and hell. You won't find them saying, hey, come on over here to, uh, to babes. We have coffee every morning. Would you come in here and tell us all about the doctrine you're proclaiming? Because we've never heard that before because we don't talk about that at babes very often. If that happens to you, would you call me? Because I'd like to just come watch. I won't say a word, I promise. I just want to watch. No, that doesn't happen, does it? They're, they're kind of, mm, mm, you know. And of course, in the more extreme, we have a great movement in our country to completely remove any pressure of religion toward the government. The separation of church and state was actually created to keep the state out of the religion's business. Because when that happens, religion dies. But in fact, it's been twisted around to say, we no impact of religion. Now, the sad truth is, and permit me to tell you the truth if you don't know it yet, if you have certain other religions, you can go into the public school because those are traditional parts of culture. And I don't even know if the people that are practicing know them that they're religious sometimes. But if you come in talking about your cultural tradition which for me goes back several generations, I, I will not be welcome. You go to uh, you know, the public school. We want to remove every aspect of Christianity from the public school. You know, sometimes there have, been, there have been significant cases that have gone to the courts where some, some little kindergartner or some first grader you know, they write a paper about who's your hero. Jesus is my hero. No, you can't write that. You see, there's no open discussion. Do you know what a liberal education literally means? It means we're open to all the ideas. I know that Christianity has to compete in the marketplace of ideas, but what you need to understand, Christian, is it's not a fair and level playing field. 
And it's not something that's wrong with you, and it's not something wrong with your presentation. It's because folks do not want to hear about Christ, and we'll find out why in a minute. Uh, Last year at Walmart, there was a company policy that said, you may not say Merry Christmas. You can say Happy Holidays. You know what happened? Christians boycotted and picketed And this year, Walmart said, oh, we were over the top last year. It's okay to say Merry Christmas. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Is it that bad? If we just say the word Christmas, ooh, we're pushing religion on you. But that's how bad some people in the world, or how, how, how sensitive some unbelievers are. My wife worked for the Tukwila School District, and there was an unofficial edict that said no Christmas decorations in the offices. The person at the head of that edict was of a very different cultural uh, and religious tradition. No Christmas decorations. That slowed my wife down about that much. That's right. Put them decorations. Everybody went, yeah, put them decorations up. (laughs) What? What? We can't have an open discussion? No! Because unbelievers hate what Christ stands for. Not all of them, I understand that. I understand there are some that are open. Praise the Lord. There are some like the folks in the book of Acts. But what you need to understand, Christian, is a great many people want to just plain stop the message of Christ, whether it's coming out of your mouth, my mouth, this church, or this country. That is part about what this conflict with the Muslims is all about. They hate Christianity. I'm sorry. And so the people in the time of Christ said, we don't like the message of Jesus, let's kill him. We're much more civilized than that now in this country. We'll just make laws that stifle you. And so there is a great... There is a great divide between Christians and unbelievers will try to stop us in physical ways. Secondly, the unbelievers in the day of Christ and the unbelievers today didn't understand the spiritual nature of Jesus. Now what I mean by that is, look with me back at John chapter 7. There is a spiritual perspective on life and there is a physical or human or worldly perspective on life. And, and, and it's not outright sin necessarily, but sometimes it has to do with how we get things done, as it is here. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, but because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three feasts that happened every year for the Jewish people. And by a feast, we mean like a week-long festival. And the the Festival of Tabernacles was um, to commemorate their 40 years in the wilderness. And so they would make what we would call a a, a little hut out of of, uh, branches and sticks and stuff. And they would would camp out in these little huts to remember where they came from. And, And this was one of three times a year when all of the men in Israel were supposed to come to Jerusalem to observe this feast. Okay, so it's... It's, a, it's not just a, something people went to and had fun. It's a religious thing, and they were supposed to come. His brothers, therefore, verse 3, said to him, Depart from here, leave Galilee, go into Judea, so that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. 
For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe. His brothers were approaching the ministry of Christ from a purely worldly perspective, which goes something like this. You need to advertise, Jesus. You're not getting enough disciples going here. You need to get out there in the public eye. They said, look, you're talking about being the Messiah. You're talking about being the king. And people are supposed to believe in you. How are they going to believe if you don't get out there and do a few miracles? Get on down there to Jerusalem and show yourself openly. Now, while that's not sinful in and of itself, it is to ignore God's plan. And we need to understand, first of all, the identity of these brothers. Now, these brothers were Jesus' brothers. Did you know that Jesus had brothers and sisters? Um, Paul uses, in, in the, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the word brothers to refer to fellow Christians. Glenn is my brother in the Lord. Uh, Cindy is my sister in the Lord. You know, that term is used that way later, but it's not used that way in John. The word brother in John means brother. Who were his brothers? Listen from Matthew. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, this not, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? That's Judas, not Iscariot. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get these things? Jesus had brothers and sisters. I have one sister. You have different numbers of siblings. It was just like that. The only difference is... Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit and Mary. These brothers and sisters were born of Joseph and Mary. So we would call them today half-brothers uh, half or half-sisters. Now why, is it, why, is, why do I stop and bear down on that? If this, was a, if this was my Sunday school class, I'd ask you to raise your hand and tell me why you think that's important. It's important because there is a major international church which teaches that Mary was perpetually a virgin that she never gave birth to any other children. And there's a, there is, in their theological system, there's a reason for that, but there's no scriptural reason because the scripture clearly says he had brothers and sisters. Clearly. And, and we're going to read something else about them in a minute. But what we read about them is that they don't believe. They were not believers. Now, Jesus lived with them, or I mean, I don't know if he lived with them for 30 years, but he lived with them for at least 20 years. I don't know if they were all together until he started his ministry. They all live together, and they don't believe. They just don't. He appointed the 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. That's his brothers talking. They're, they're going, Jesus, you've got delusions of grandeur. You have a Messiah complex. He thinks he's the Savior of the world. That's what they thought. They thought he was out of his mind. Christian, if you really live for the Lord, there will be people around you who will say, 
you know, the, the Christianity thing is okay, but don't be so much of a fanatic. Could you just tone it down a little? Now, I know we need to be gracious and kind and have our speech seasoned with salt, but if you just speak the plain truth of God, people are going to think you're a fanatic. The brothers of Jesus didn't believe, and so they give him advice. <laughs> they give him advice. Go on down there and advertise. It pays to advertise. The brothers were pushing him to use human tools of manipulation because they didn't understand the spiritual nature of ministry. What does Jesus say to them? He says, it's not my time. Jesus knew that there were two possibilities. If he walked, up, if he walked into the Festival of Tabernacles and said, well, here I am, there were two possibilities. One is they'd make him king by force. And that's when a whole big crowd takes you and puts you on their shoulders and says, King Jesus, King Jesus, King Jesus. You read in the Old Testament about them doing that a couple times to people. The other possibility would have been he would have been killed by the Jewish leaders who hated him. And what Jesus says is, it's not my time yet. It's not here. Later on, what does he actually do on the, on the week of his passion? He rides into town on the back of a donkey. And the people are saying, hey, King Jesus. And he's right there. So he's not trying to hide because he's scared. He's saying, it's not my time yet. This is a human way to do things, not a spiritual way. Listen to this imagination of what it would be like if Jesus had consulted with a management consulting firm about the choice of his apostles. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but we've also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to carefully study each of them. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and fit to temp fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business interest and has contacts in high places. He is rightly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. Folks, that is the way it would have been if Jesus had consulted a management consulting firm. And that's why Jesus didn't do it. He consulted with 
the Father in heaven. And God had a plan, and God had a plan for all of the life of Jesus, and Jesus submitted to that plan. He didn't say, oh, what's the best way I can get a bunch of attention? He said, what are the things that God has for me to do? Turn back with me to uh, John chapter 6, if you will. Listen to what happened to Peter while you're turning there. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In John chapter 6, we read these words, starting in verse 28. This is the crowd of people, not the disciples. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, what sign do you perform that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? The brothers were pushing him the same way that this crowd was. They were saying, look, do some miracles, show your stuff. And people will come flocking around. It's a human way of thinking, not a godly way of thinking. We need to constantly ask ourselves, are we thinking about God's ministry the way God thinks about it? Or are we thinking about just whatever human tool we can grab onto? I have an acquaintance who's a very successful businessman who tried to get me to read the latest cutting-edge marketing book. He said, man, this is what you need. This is what churches need. You know, we need to figure out all these ways we can market things and so on. And I know occasionally we can learn something from folks outside of these walls, but if we're going to apply a, the world's method of marketing to the church, it seems like we're going to be on bad ground. Jesus said, I'm not going to market myself. Christian, many well-meaning unbelievers will try to tell you that you need this expert or that one to help your life. They may mean well, but they don't understand the spiritual nature of new life in Christ. What's the message of the brothers? There's a side message of the brothers here. I've just told you what I think is the main message, but there's an important side message. And the side message is this. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. Do you understand what that means? These brothers were unbelievers, but after the rest of Jesus' ministry, another six months or so from, the, from John 7, another six months, the death, burial, resurrection, and his appearances after that, they became believers. How stupid do you think those brothers felt? Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, I was just so dense, I didn't get it. I mean, here they were with him, living with him, and they didn't believe in him, but they came to faith. You know what that tells me? That tells me God is patient. God knows, as the scripture says, that we are made of dust. He knows that your mind isn't that sharp, and he knows that you need the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. Oh, God is patient. 
Jesus didn't hate his brothers and say, you stupid idiots, you've known me for over 30 years, get away from me. No, even Peter, when he talks like Satan, Jesus said, Satan, get away from me, but Peter, he kept ministering to. God is patient. And I hope that doesn't encourage you to just think, oh, I'll just keep living in sin, God's patient. Don't do that because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know tomorrow if you'll be alive. But God has been patient to this point in your life, and so there's no need for anyone to say, oh, God doesn't want me. I've I've burned up all my chances with him. If you're sitting here, I'm telling you God is calling to you. God is patient. Secondly, this tells me it's never too late for you to believe in Christ. God always welcomes those who come to him. Remember what Jesus said? Any man who comes to me, I will not cast out. Not only did Jesus' brothers believe, but at least two of them became prominent Christian leaders. James, who wrote the book of James and was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, as best we understand. And Judas, not Iscariot, but Judas, who wrote the book of Judas. They were both used of God in great ways. Unbelievers judge life by physical standards. They don't understand the spiritual nature of ministry. And thirdly, the the reason there is a divide between Christians and non-Christians is this. The unbelievers judge judge life, the morality of life, by a different standard. Look at verse 7 of John chapter 7. This gets to the real heart of the disagreement between Christians and those who have not yet believed. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you. He's talking to his brothers because they were unbelievers. They're just part of the world. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. I testify of it that its works are evil. Unbelievers judge the moral quality of life on a scale of comparison. And it goes something like this. Well, I'm not as bad as Ted Bundy. I mean, I'm no serial murderer. Or they'll say, hey, I'm a good husband. I haven't had an affair. I'm a loving loving mother. I'm not like that woman that put her kids in the car and drove it in the lake. In school, they call this grading on a curve. I, You know, I... I'm not sure how many of my teachers did it, but there's a couple different ways to grade on a curve, but the standard way is this. The person that gets the highest score, then that sets the bracket, and they'll go down 10% for an A and 10% for a B and so on. And so in teachers who grade on a curve, and the other students will say to that one smart student, you have ruined the curve, and there will be animosity toward that one student who has to get everything right all the time. But God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't look at your life and go, well, hey, you're better than that guy that lives down the street from you. Come on to heaven. Well, hey, you, you've, you, you have actually done more good deeds than bad in your life. Okay, come on to heaven. You know, God doesn't grade that way. God has an absolute standard. I think this is not my report card. I know that because it's got a lot of A's on it. <laughs> But I think some of my report cards looked like this when I was in, in the younger years of school, and they used to grade uh, things like health and, 
and uh, social attributes and some of that. And, uh, and in my house, if you got a bad grade on conduct, that was worse than getting a bad grade on academics. And back in this era, there was an absolute standard. You get an A or you don't get an A. My Greek professor in college had an absolute standard, and he kept track of points down to a tenth of a point for missing an accent mark. And if you missed an A by a tenth of a point, you missed the A. And he was the nicest, gracious, quietest man you'd ever want to meet. Folks, I'm here to tell you, God has an absolute standard. And that is very upsetting to unbelievers. Because, and, and, and frankly, it's upsetting to Christians many times. You know, I had a man come in my office 10 years ago down in Tuckwilla, and he said, I'm in love with two women. And I, I'd never met him before. And I said, this is how smart I am. I said, and you're married to one of them, aren't you? Yep. And you know what his primary goal in being there was? He wanted to see if there was some way he could keep his lover and his wife. <laughs> and I said, no, there's no way. This is an absolute standard. <laughs> I didn't shout quite that loud, but I wanted to. You idiot. <laughs> you know. Your wife isn't the main problem here, bud. It's God. God has an absolute standard. And I'm sorry, it's absolute for me too, and I don't like that either sometimes. Here's the absolute standard. But as he who called you, that's God, God who has called you to salvation, as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all your conduct. You mean I have to be like God? Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. You see that right there? There's no partiality. There's no curve here. He doesn't look at me and say, oh Dave, you're serving me full time. Well, I'm going to cut you a little slack on the details. Absolutely not. There's no partiality. Then conduct yourselves to the time of your stay here in fear. The biggest rub between true Christianity and non-Christianity is that God says there is an absolute standard of righteousness. And in fact, the standard for getting into heaven is total perfection. And I've had the chance to tell that to a couple of unbelievers recently, and they're kind of going, well, how do I do it? How do I get there? Well, good news. Jesus died to make you totally perfect. What this is all about is remembering that Jesus suffered and shed his blood so that your sin would be washed away. And when you come in humble faith and say, I am a sinner, I must believe in Jesus the Savior, your sin is washed away. And when God looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of Christ and he sees holiness. That's the coolest thing because that's what makes you ready for heaven. Now, Within your daily walk, are there some things you need to be working on, Christian? Absolutely. But the fact that God has this absolute standard creates a great struggle between believers and non-believers. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Christian, you need to be encouraged. I hope I can encourage you today in this way. It is not you that unbelievers don't like. It's God's standard. You just remind them of the standard. 
And that's why they'll poke at you and say, oh, you think you're holier than us. You think you're something special. And I hope you're ready when they say that to say, absolutely not. I'm just like you. The only difference is God has forgiven my sin and he's given me the ability to do right. And he'll give it to you. But the fact that you stand for an absolute standard makes it uncomfortable. One author, in talking about the light of Jesus coming onto the darkness of the world, said, said the most picturesque thing to me. As the sun shines on the swamp, it will bring forth malaria. But the fault is not in the sun, but in the ground. The very same rays call forth fertility from the grain fields. So the truth of God will yield a spiritual fruit from a believing heart, but from a carnal or worldly mind, it will provoke endless cavil and blasphemy. If we didn't have to call sin, sin, we'd have lots more friends. I think the pews would be full if we talked like, hey, you know, just think better and feel better about yourself and so on and so forth. If we didn't have to call sin, we'd, we'd have lots more friends. If we didn't have to say there's only one proper expression for sexuality and it's marriage between one man and one woman. If we didn't have to say that, the seats would be full. Hey, you know, we're all just struggling, do whatever works for you right now. If we would join with the majority in saying that you are not responsible for your behavior. You have a mental illness or physical addiction. If we would say that and say, no, it's not sin. Sin's not your problem. We'd have a lot more friends. Jesus said, you're sinners. And the unbeliever said, let's kill him. The fourth difference between believers and unbelievers that we see in this passage is this. The unbelievers won't take risks for their spiritual beliefs. Look at John chapter 7, verse 12. There was much complaining. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good, others said no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Jesus was the Religious question of the day. And the word for complaining in the New King James, uh, and in the King James it's murmuring, and it actually means literally to speak in a low tone. Kind of like, hey, did you hear about Jesus? Have you, have you heard about some of those miracles? Uh, he, can't, he healed my neighbor. Did you hear about that? And they're talking like that. And you know why they're talking in low tones? Because they've been made aware that if they poke their head up and go, hey, anybody here want to have a discussion about Jesus? that what's going to happen is somebody's going to come along and smack them. Probably more literally, what's going to happen, and, and, and he said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I'm going to back up. More likely, what was going to happen to these folks is they would be excommunicated from the synagogue, which means they would be put out. They would be not able to have social interaction with their fellows. And so what did they do? They kept quiet. They kept quiet. When the Pharisees came around, they shut up. Jesus knew how people would respond to his message. 
And he knew how hard it would be for people to come to true faith and to stick with that faith. Listen to his words here. He said to them, who do you say that I am? To the apostles. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said this later in that same text, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, Christian, you need to keep all Scripture always in balance to, its, to, to the rest. There is a place where Jesus said, I'm coming to give peace to you. He's talking on a personal level there. But he also says there's going to be some challenge. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the truth, Christian. If you choose to believe in Christ and you live a righteous life, you will come into division and discord with some unbelievers at some time. And what Jesus is saying is, they could very well be the people in your own house. I have a, an acquaintance who came to Christ recently, and the rest of, of that person's family is of another non-Christian religion, and they are constantly barraging this new Christian with accusations and condemnations about everything from the Bible to the truth she believes. Boom, 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 boom. And they aren't going to let up. If that hasn't happened to you yet, praise the Lord. What Jesus is telling us about here, he's starting to tell us is, that is not unusual. It's not unusual. You've got to decide if you're willing to go the distance for your beliefs. How valuable is it that you know Christ as your Savior? Are you willing to stand up and say, no, I don't believe that, or yes, I believe this, or whatever the discussion might take. Are you willing to stand up for the Lord? Now, God doesn't want us to be offensive people. In my new ministry opportunity at the sheriff's office, I don't walk around and, and carry my pulpit Bible like this, looking for whom I may devour. But I also am not going to pass up any opportunity. At, at one of my fire departments, they used to say, clean it up, the rev's coming. And so after they said it a few times, I started saying it. Hey, I, I can take it and I can give it. And, and so I'm always ready, but I'm not whacking people over the head. God doesn't command us to do that, but he does command us to stand tall when the time comes and not to back down. You know, when, when, if it hasn't happened to you about this one, it'll happen about another when a guy like Ted Haggard, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, says, yes, I've been having sex with a male homosexual prostitute, and I've been taking drugs. When he says that, people in your life that know you're a Christian, they're going to poke you. And are you going to say, oh, I'll just run away? Or are you going to stand there and say, you know what? We're all sinners, and by the grace of God, God has kept me from that sin, and, and I don't condemn him any more than I condemn myself when I sin. 
you know, some things have to happen and some changes have to be made, but, or are you just going to cower? Christian, we're on a whole different plane, and it's not because we're better than other people. It's because God has saved us. Don't be surprised when you're put on the defensive for your faith. Don't feel bad, but don't run away. Last week in Marion Pottle's testimony, she said one of the greatest compliments I could have. She said, Pastor Dave's preaching isn't for sissies. And I would just change that by one stroke. God's word isn't for sissies. God's word and God demands that we be people of courage. Jesus showed us today in this scripture that there is a great divide between the average unbeliever and the godly believer. And we can't meet in the middle. But we can stand our ground and say, come on, God wants you, I want you. Come on and join us. It's great over here. And that's what God wants us to do. Heavenly Father, it's easy to preach this to a crowd of Christians. It's harder to live it. Help me to know how to stand up for you. Help me to see those opportunities. Help me not to run. Help me not to cower. Help me not to cave in. Help me to speak the truth in love. Help this church to be a place where we speak the truth in love. I pray in Christ's name, amen.